This is the third episode in my series about how new DNA technology solves previously unsolvable cold cases. It's called FGG, Forensic Genetic Genealogy. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, taking you inside the crime scene tape into how the first ever use of forensic genetic genealogy in Dallas County, Texas, caught a serial rapist responsible for upwards of 50 victims. The investigation by the Office of District Attorney John Crusoe was made possible by a sexual assault kit initiative federal grant known as Saki. You will learn more about Saki in this episode and you will start to hear it frequently mentioned as cold cases are solved across the United States. A serial rapist terrorized women in Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and mainly in Dallas for 10 years starting in the late 1970s. He wore a ski mask, broke into apartments while his victims were asleep, held a gun to their head, tied them up, sexually assaulted them, and then stole jewelry and money. Their predator appeared to stop in the late 1980s. Dallas police started working the cold case again when, in 2005, a survivor asked if the evidence collected from her attack had been submitted for advanced DNA testing. They uploaded the DNA profiles into the FBI's CODIS database, looking for a match to previously convicted offenders or cases. The suspect DNA from four Dallas rapes was linked to two rapes in Shreveport, Louisiana, which were cold cases. But the perpetrator's DNA was not in the database. The MO resembled that used by the notorious Golden State Killer. And that later grabbed the attention of Leighton D'Antoni, Dallas County's cold case prosecutor. D'Antoni, working with the FBI, applied the same technology, FGG, that a California prosecutor used to help convict a 75-year-old former police officer in the Golden State Killer case. In the Dallas cases, D'Antoni prosecuted 75-year-old serial rapist David Thomas Hawkins for the aggravated sexual assault of a Dallas woman more than three decades earlier. D'Antoni and the investigators used Forensic Genetic Genealogy, FGG, to identify Hawkins. Here's the story of how D'Antoni solved a previous unsolvable cold case. Prior to moving to Dallas, I went to law school and started my career practicing in California. Um, I was a public defender in San Diego for six years. And the Golden State Killer case was something that, you know, everybody, we all kind of knew about it. Um, you know, getting into being a, a, an attorney and, and practicing criminal law, both as a prosecutor and a criminal defense lawyer. I've always been, you know, fascinated in true crime, read true crime novels. Uh, and that was a case that had always really intrigued me. Fast forward to, I think it was 2018, I was reading a book by Michelle McNamara. Um, and she had written a book uh, prior to her passing away about the saga of the Golden State Killer and... You and know, she named him. She's the one that came up with the name. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because before it was, his name was Ear. I think it was East Area Rapist right. is what they called him. And that's just not a great name for a, a serial rapist. But yeah, so Golden State Killer then uh, 
was being talked about, she unfortunately passed away before finishing her book. Um, and I remember I was on Twitter and she had been married to Pat Oswalt, who is a comedian and actor. And he tweeted something that was just, you know, didn't exactly say what had happened, but it, it was just like, oh my God, big news. Finally, it's here. You know, we'll, we'll know for sure tomorrow kind of thing. And just, I remember looking at the replies and who were involved in the replies and it was obviously about GSK. And so then to come find that next day that and he was arrested and trying to find out because again, nobody knew what FGG was. And well, and let's say it here. It's forensic yeah. genetic genealogy. genealogy. It's a mouthful. And, um, Certainly in the last few years, it has become more common and people are becoming aware of it, but it's still very much in its infancy. But when I realized that it was this method that had captured him or identified him and having, you know, that was probably three or four years into being the chief of our cold case unit and working nothing but DNA cases, I was just kind of floored, like, wow, what's this completely revolutionary new DNA technique um, that was used to solve what people thought was an unsolvable case? And I started just trying to get whatever information I could about it. There wasn't a lot out there. I reached out to our local Dallas FBI office because I knew FBI, the LA office had worked extensively and, you know, whatever wasn't being released in public, they would know about it. And sure enough, there was a, an agent in the Dallas office who also, I think, similar to me, was fascinated by FGG and was just trying to learn as much about it as he could. I know, you know, he went out to the LA office, got trained, and was going to be sort of the regional FBI contact for our area for FGG. And he was like, you know, this just happens to be a great call, you know, out of nowhere. Let's get together and start working on this stuff. Well, so far, our listeners, give us a simple explanation of how it works you've studied it when we're talking about dna testing especially as used as forensic evidence in criminal cases you know that's been the gold standard since really the mid 90s uh, it's a certain type of dna testing that is going to look at different alleles or markers to come up with somebody's individual dna profile that testing which actually is done at the lab is very different than the type of testing which is used in fgg that testing is called SNP testing. And that testing is looking at somebody's genetic makeup or code and is ultimately going to be used to find out who's related to who and how closely you're related to that person. And so the DNA testing that's done in the lab is called SNP testing. Most labs in the country do not do it. I think there's only a handful that are doing it right now. But if you have DNA ex extract and there's enough of it, you can have it SNP tested, and it's going to give you this incredibly lengthy amount the family of family tree, yeah, on the chromosomes, yeah. And so, and it's judged in semi-organs, and without getting too technical again, because I'm not a scientist and and don't want to misspeak about the uh, the science of it. You can then take that information from the SNP testing and see how closely somebody might be related to somebody else. And sometimes we get SNP testing results that show, you know, we can compare them to, uh, there's several databases um, online you can find. So, and I'll back up just real quick. Say you're someone who is a consumer and does like a 23andMe or, you know, one of these consumer ancestry DNA kits. A lot of times what those individuals will do after they get their results from those companies is then go to 
websites, many of them open source websites, that they can upload their results to see maybe I'm related to some people we didn't know or get more information about their family and their background. Well, at the same time, um, and it, it really kind of went from being a tool used to find out, you know, who I am or, you know, are you really my parents and adoptions and people wanting to find out who their birth parents were. And it, that same theory translated and transitioned into being an identification tool for criminal cases. And so it's at that point, once you can take a SNP testing profile to see how closely you are related or see who in this database might be a relative of you. Um, sometimes it's, you know, like seventh level cousins. Sometimes it's, you know, siblings or half siblings. But it's and, not telling you the exact perpetrator. It's just telling you it's a new lead for the detectives. It correct. gets them closer to the perpetrator. And, and I think the big takeaway I always try and explain to people is that FGG is an investigative lead. It's not going to solve your case. It's not going to be the evidence that I bring into court to identify a suspect, but it is going to be a tool used to help identify or get to that identification because ultimately nothing changes in regards to the DNA evidence we present in court is still going to be that traditional STR DNA profile that we've been using for 25 years. Well, you learn about this tool mm -hmm. and then you decide to apply it. Yes. So, and again, I'm a very skeptical person, former public defender, prosecutor. I need someone to not just explain it to me, prove it to me that this is something that I can rely on. And certainly GSK opened the door and brought a national spotlight on this technique. Um, but I needed to, you know, have it explained to me. And that's what was so great about working with sort of the leaders because the FBI was really leading the charge here nationally with the Department of Justice and being educated on it. Um, you know, working with people who had used it before and then just, you know, the first case we worked on, uh, which is a case that's still uh, pending adjudication, um, was not, you know, the first case we solved or adjudicated with FGG. And, you know, for me, it was frustrating because they said, you know, it could take a day, it could take five years, it could take 10 years. It's ultimately going to be dependent on what family members have uploaded their profiles um, to these sites and how close they are. But uh, it does put you on the trail of a serial rapist that's evaded police for sure. years. Walk, us, walk me through this case. So with David Hawkins, um, it had been about, I'd say nine months or about a year after I had first started, you know, educating myself, learning about FGG, working with FBI. We had a case, um, that it was a murder case that we had, you know, been using it on and we were getting close. You know, we had a large family identified, but several potential suspects that just couldn't get over that hump. Well, it was the first or second week of March 2020. And this is right when COVID kind of just floored everybody. Mm -hmm. And it was the first week our office shut down, just like everybody else. We're all shut down. We're all work from home. Courts are closed. My trial docket has cleared out and you know certainly up until that time you know 80 85 percent of my work day is either i'm in trial or i'm preparing for trial and all of a sudden that's gone and while it, you know it created a backlog and a difficulty in our trial schedule it really afforded an opportunity to start 
working heavily more on the investigative side of our cases. And I love that. You know, I, I wish I had more time to do that, but you know, certainly the trial work is is the priority. Um and having all of a sudden all this time where I could really get into working, learning more about the FGG, um working with my team on the investigative side of cases. We had several cases that were we've been working that I thought this could be applicable to. Um, I get an email from a woman and she's like, I just, you know, I heard your name and I think she had gotten it from a, a victim advocate at the Dallas police department who she had worked with for several years. You know, here you work cold cases, the especially ones that are, you know, sexual assault related, sexual assault homicides. Um, and then she just kind of told me her story and she was one of the victims of David Hawkins. And I had not heard about this case. This is old case. Talk, yes. Talk about where it was, when it was. Sure. So David Hawkins, um, as we later came to find out, was a prolific serial rapist from the late 70s up until about 19, I want to say 87 or so. So about a 10-year period in multiple jurisdictions. We're talking Arkansas, Louisiana, uh, but primarily in Texas and primarily in the Dallas area. So I've, I learned about this case and what, how this usually works is, you know, we'll go to the agency who originally investigated this case. Uh, that was the Dallas Police Department. Uh, we request their files, talk to their, you know, sex assault detectives, start working in collaboration with them. Um, a lot of times we get cold cases or, or we get files and it wasn't investigated as properly as it should be. This case was not like that. The Dallas Police Department did an incredible job and several, you know, through several groups, the 80s, the case was picked back up by uh, Pat Welsh in early 2000s. And I know he, you know, put as much work into this case as I've seen any detective on a case. But again, just couldn't identify who he was, but they were able to identify a DNA profile, I think in around 2005. Um, that DNA profile was uploaded into CODIS, which is the National Offender uh, DNA Database, uh, no match. And that means that our suspect just hasn't been convicted of a felony or, as we've also come to find, was convicted of a felony but didn't have their DNA taken like they should have. Ah. So what was his modus operandi? It was, you know, going back to GSK, it was very GSK-like. Um, and I think that was another thing that kind of drew me to it. I was like, this sounds very familiar, but he would break into young, single women's apartments, uh, wearing a ski mask, gloves, always had a gun and, uh, you know, would violently tie them up and, and rape them. And so. No homicides, though, behind it. Nothing that we could prove. And, as, you know, I'll talk about later when we actually had a sit down with him after the case was over. That's something he always said. And he said, you'll never find any evidence of it. We never had any cases that we thought might have been him. Now, I did speak with some law enforcement in the Shreveport area in Louisiana who felt he maybe could have been linked to it, but there was no DNA evidence and they never charged him. In my experience, and certainly going back in time when I'm knowing some of the original profilers at the FBI, like Roy Hazelwood, it seemed that the, the serial rapists were all, many of them were on a, on a path to murder. And that's typically what we see. And that's a big part of what my team, you know, our goal is really to identify the serial rapists and serial killers. And as we've come to find, 
and doing this for the last eight years, these aren't people who are just doing it one time and, and there is an escalation pattern. And so, you know, a big focus at the SACI grant that funds our team here at the Dallas DA's office is trying to identify them. I mean, obviously someone being raped in, in any fashion is a horrible, horrible yes. thing, but to be able to identify these offenders at that point before they escalate or, you know, continue to, whether it's continue to rape or continue to um, escalate into a homicide and, and other things, these aren't just people who are doing a single crime. And explain about the Saki grants. Sure. So Saki is the, uh, it's a national department of justice, BJA grant that uh, started in 2015. And really the goal was to, get funding to not only test all these untested rape kits nationwide, but then to actually be able to see successful prosecutions through. Um, so Saki is Sexual Assault Initiative. Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, sorry. It's the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. Uh, started in 2015. Uh, the Dallas County DA's office is the original grantee uh, in the program, and we're still in the program. Do you have a sense of what happened that so many departments had these things sitting in evidence room and never been tested? I do. Um, you know, I think there was a very different mentality uh, in law enforcement 15, 20, 30 years ago in regards to sexual assault cases that um, primarily because of who these victims were, the cases were probably not given due attention. And here's the deal. Serial rapists, they're smart. They certainly do identify and target, you know, the most vulnerable members of our societies. So that's prostitutes, um, drug addicts, mental health issues really uh, seem to be. And, and the cases that we're seeing, the reason why the kits are not tested is maybe because uh, agencies had issues with the credibility of their victim. And uh, what we've learned is that, you know, and I always tell the story of uh, one of my first cases, ser big serial cases I tried. Um, one of my victims had been convicted of capital murder. And I brought her back from TDC to testify. And, you know, he explained to the jury, I mean, what she did and that she's in prison for and going to be in prison for the rest of her life and paying her debt to society doesn't change at all what happened when this other guy years before, you know, violently raped her at knife point. And when you talk about them preying on the vulnerable, you know, I always used to tell my teenage daughter, sweetheart, bad things happen between 12 and 8 a.m. Sure. And that, that's when, you know, 90% of these cases are probably occurring. And yes, I mean, do we have uh, survivors who were out drinking, doing drugs, yeah. you know, and we've had cases where they blacked out and that presents difficulty, I think, not just to law enforcement and I think prosecutors. And so um, that mixed with the cost, you know, DNA, especially in the 90s and, you know, the first kind of 10 and 15 years, it's expensive. And so law enforcement agencies don't always have a, a big budget to pay for that testing. And so you mix that with the cases that they thought were maybe difficult or they didn't want to investigate fully, you get a rape kit backlog. And that's what we were really looking at in 2015, you know, just in Dallas, the Dallas police department, you know, we had around 4,500 untested kits. 
Right, we're going to pause a moment. When we come back, we're going to pick up the story of the FGG and how you're using a, the family tree to find the perpetrator. I'm back with uh, Leighton D'Antoni from the Dallas County District Attorney's Office, Chief of the Cold Case Unit. And we're going to pick up the story, Leighton, of you're on the family tree looking for this perpetrator of, of what is a serial rapist. What do you find there? How do you narrow the search down? Where does this go now? So, again, in March 2020, I'm notified by one of the victims of, of this prolific serial rapist who, again, we had his DNA profile. It had been identified in 2005. Um, it did not match anybody in CODIS, but it did match several cases in the Dallas area. And it also matched two cases in the Shreveport, Louisiana area. And Which tells you you've got a serial offender. Absolutely. Yeah. And it also tells me that if we have six case-to-case matches in DNA, it probably is five times that many, at least in reality. Mm-hmm. Now, the type of case that is really perfect for FGG is this type of case. We have a DNA profile. It's an unknown person. We're not able to match it to anybody in CODIS. So this is really where FGG comes in is we then go to our local crime lab, SWIFTS, and and that stands for the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Technology, but it's the Dallas County Crime Lab. And I met with their you know, biological unit and the the folks that run the DNA over there and ask them, number one, do we have DNA extract from that original evidence where we got the profile? And that's important because the labs that do the SNP testing for FGG are going to require a certain amount of extract to be left. So we call that a quant. So we ask for the quant. Um, They have to do, you know, their testing at SWIFTS to figure out what the quant is on the DNA evidence that we have. And I take that number to whichever lab is going to be doing the SNP testing, and they tell me whether or not that's enough. And luckily, in this case, we had enough DNA extract so we could send that DNA extract to uh, the lab that's going to do the SNP testing. They do the SNP testing, and they're able to, you know, spit out this genetic code um, that then is turned over to um, a genetic genealogist. And what their job is, is really to, again, compare that SNP testing result to the available open source SNP testing profiles that are online. GEDmatch is the one, is the largest one in the country. And it's the one that people are familiar with. There are others, and I won't get into, you know, which ones we use on which cases, but I just kind of use GEDmatch as, as a reference. Um, it, so they'll take that, put it into GEDmatch and see if anybody is related. Uh, Sometimes you can get, you know, I've seen as in this Hawkins case, I think they were able to build a tree and identify him specifically as our suspect in 24 hours. Really? Which was, I'll never forget it. We got the SNP testing results, I think late on a Thursday night, uh, it may have been fr- Friday morning. And so those were given to, when we were working with the FBI and Dallas Police Department, um, we knew who our genealogist was going to be. I think we got her that information on that Friday and that next Saturday morning, I was at my son's baseball game and I get a call from the FBI agent and he said, we got him. And I said, 
you mean like we, we know the family or, you know, we're close. What are we going to do? We've got to go surveil some people, maybe get some what we call target tests, some family members. So he's like, oh, no, it's definitely him. And he sent me, texted me the picture and information of the guy, um, you know, and he was li- living in Keene, Texas, about an hour from here. Uh, and I just, I couldn't believe how quickly uh, we were able to identify him. And that just showed that he had several very close family members who had uploaded their uh, DNA profile. And so the next step in the investigation is what? You've got this lead. So, and again, yeah, it's just an investigative lead. And I always tell people or, you know, the prosecutors or law enforcement that we train on this legally, you know, this FGG is, has the same investigative lead significance as an anonymous tip. It's like if somebody called an anonymous tip hotline and said, Hey, this is your guy. Yes. I can't go into court and be like, Hey, I got this, you know, random message from somebody who didn't give me their name that this is our guy we're still going to need to use the same traditional STR DNA testing to confirm identity. There's different ways you can go about doing that. In this particular case, we uh, were able to set up surveillance on his home. And the reason we wanted to do the surveillance on his home was because if we're going to get discarded trash or some type of evidence. He to needs test, to be the only male living he needs there. To, well, it, you can have other males living there, but if you need to come up with a, a house like routine or pattern. Oh. So luckily in this case, though, he was the only male that lived there. He had a live-in girlfriend at the time, but we did not have any other males entering or exiting the house for a week. And it's at that point, then we could start seeing if he discarded trash or, you know, some way to be able to get a, a DNA, a piece of, you know, evidence. I think in this case it was beer bottles. Uh, where we take those, run the DNA test, and again, our local crime lab did an amazing job in quickly turning that over. And within a couple of days of, I think, that trash, we had our confirmation. And then, it, and it doesn't even stop there. That then gives us probable cause once we arrest him for a search warrant to get what we call buckle swab. And that's where they take kind of a Q-tip into the cheek. And ultimately, that's the evidence I'm taking into court is... Did that DNA profile from the cheek swab match the evidence from our case? Did you take the swab at his home or you bring him in? No. So he was arrested uh, early one morning and it was in August of, I think it was 20, this is 2020. And as part of the arrest, well, typically, you know, you get an arrest warrant signed by a judge and at the same time, a search warrant. Which gives you the right to take the uh, yes. sample. What was his reaction? You know, it's interesting. I think, and and like any serial offender who's gotten away with it for so long, you know, it kind of reminds me of Dennis Rader when he was caught. It's just, you know, what took you so long? Or Mm -hmm. I think they've probably played out in their minds thousands of times what it's going to be like when they get caught. And in this case, you know, and they, you know, raided his house at like 5 a.m., he was just like, uh, his girlfriend was pretty shocked, but <laughs> he, uh, well, even that, you know, a serial rapist and he has a girlfriend. Oh yeah. And you know, I've prosecuted probably over 20 serial offenders, um, at this point in my career. I mean, they all have wives, girlfriends who have no clue, just no clue or they don't let on that they do. Mm-hmm. And that always shocks me. And then they always stay by them. Now she didn't. In this case, I remember we, interviewed her the day he was arrested and 
she was like, whatever you want, I'm here. Just let me know what you need. Um, but more times than not, they stick, stick with him. I'll say probably about a month after he was arrested, I got a call from his lawyer and he had, you know, spent some time with him on multiple visits in the Dallas County jail. And his lawyer just came out to me and said, he doesn't want to fight this. And the reason he gave to me, and I think it was, it was probably valid is that he, the case had already received a lot of media attention. First FGG case we had done in Mm -hmm. Dallas County Mm -hmm. solved at least. Um, and he was really concerned about the public notoriety that had already affected his family, but that a, a trial, and it was going to be a big trial with, you know, lots of victims and, you know, certainly a lot of media coverage. And he said, what can we do to not have a trial? And I said, well, you know, and usually pretty early to be talking about like plea bargains or what we were going to offer. Um, I knew at that point, though, that there would be no offer. Uh, on a case like this, as important as it was, uh, there'd be no offer if he wanted to plead guilty to each and every case and receive a life sentence on each and every case. That was really going to be the starting point of any negotiation. Um, and again, I'm also talking to our survivors and, and their input certainly is important. And we had all agreed to that. And then his lawyer said, well, what if I tell you that he is prepared to confess to not just the four cases you're going to be taking a grand jury on him, but upwards 30 to 50 cases. And that puts us in a, in a, in a bind sometimes because we have to weigh what we believe. And the only acceptable outcome in my mind was life in prison. And with really, and why you can't get life without parole in aggravated sexual assault cases at his age and the severity of the cases, I knew any life sentence, he would be in prison for the rest of his life. That, that would was be the, com- coming out in a pine box. Yes. The only acceptable outcome. So then, you know, we have to think about it. Well, shoot, in these, all these other cases, this could be, you know, life-changing for so many other survivors that we don't even know about. I mean, we knew he was a prolific serial rapist. We knew he had lots of cases in Dallas. We were starting to put the pieces together. We were you know, kind of going on a background check on him and realized that he was a local branch manager for a very large uh, food and beverage distributor that was based in Fort Worth. And his route was basically Shreveport and then just starting in Texas and going all the way to West Texas. So, you know, Abilene, Wichita Falls, um, Amarillo, El Paso for a period of time. So was he committing rapes on the job or yes. overnight? While um, he was traveling. While he's traveling. Yeah, at a minimum. We knew he had several. Um, and so I went back to the four survivors on our four Dallas cases where we had DNA. And I told them, you know, this is what he has told us. And, you know, and I, it's hard because ultimately it's the district attorney's office to decide a plea bargain. But again, in my cases, it's very heavily driven by either the survivors or in the homicide cases, the families. That is going to be the most important thing we consider. And when you have multiple victims, it can get hard because some may say one thing and some may say another. They all wanted the life sentence. I mean, we were all agreeing on that. But some of them felt, you know, if we could bring closure to other women, maybe consider doing something less than life. And some said, no, they, they wanted life. And ultimately, I called his attorney back and I said, no deal. Um... It would be great, and I think it would certainly help your client and his soul to uh, confess and get all this off his chest. 
Um, but he's going to have to plead guilty to each and every case, and he's going to have to take a life sentence. And uh, got a call the next day, said, okay, we're good. So then I draft up an, an agreement, and it's you know what we kind of call a, a well, we used to call it California free talk, but basically stating that he waives his right, obviously, to remain silent. His lawyer will be there, but he's agreeing to tell us everything and everything he says can be used against him, not only in the four cases we had, but in any cases he confessed to. And then we scheduled um, in October of that year, a multiple, I think it was two days session uh, where he sat down with our, uh, our FBI agent. Uh, we had the detective from the Dallas police department who was involved uh, and myself. And we debriefed him, you know, for two days and he confessed. He couldn't give us a number, uh, but he said it was at least 30 and probably closer to 50 or 60 over that 10 year period um, between Arkansas, Louisiana and Texas. Were you able to clear any cases? Did you get any specificity of an address or where? And So we, he definitely remembered addresses. And so with our four Dallas cases, they were all in the same kind of similar geographical area. And again, the MOs there were young single women living on their own in apartments. Uh, Along the delivery route? No. So these were ones that he, he was living in Tarrant County at the time and okay. came over and did. Uh, but most of his cases, he did say, were delivery routes. But this was, you know, and here was the thing about Dallas in the 80s. There were multiple serial rapists who were hitting these very similar geographical areas. And there's an apartment complex called The Village. And, you know, we've had several cases that we were like, this must all be the same guy. The MO's the same. Um, and I think we've now linked three different serial rapists to cases just in that apartment complex. And the one, and one surrounding it. So that became difficult and tried to say which ones were him or not. Certainly with the cases that had DNA, we knew which ones were him. But most of them didn't have DNA. Did he have a preferential type? I would say most of his victims were um, young white women in their early 20s with longer hair, uh, athletic. You know, what he would do when he was on the road is he said he would park his car a few blocks away from where he was going and then dress up like he was jogging, like had a jogging outfit on. And that's how he would case and do surveillance on areas, identify somebody that he wanted to sexually assault and then break into their apartment. Would he return usually at night? Yes. Under the cover of darkness. Yeah. And he would sometimes jog at night. And he told us he sometimes um, repeated. He had same victims. We were, again, we're not able to identify most of these because they were out of Dallas. Like I, I can only, you know, work the cases in Dallas, but we certainly, you know, let those law enforcement agencies in those different cities know about these cases. But I think the fact that he was receiving four life sentences here and the fact there was no DNA on those other cases, they probably weren't ever going to be prosecutable. Um, but, you know, we certainly did everything we could. You must've been stunned when he said 40 to 50, or is this typical? I wasn't surprised that someone, you know, a serial rapist had that many cases. I was surprised that he got away with it for so long. Was it forcible entry? Yes. Right. And, and so, so, I mean, sometimes it was like, sometimes or? it was a sliding door that was left okay. unlocked gotcha. or, you know, but yes. yeah, sometimes he wore gloves, he would break the window and, you know, undo a lock or a latch. But he returned in black with a ski mask. Yes. Always a ski mask, always gloves. Um, 
which brings me to when we finally did get to the day where he pled guilty in court and we had our victim impact statements that was in 2021. Um, again, you know, the courts were just starting to open back up because of COVID everyone's a mask. And that initial victim who had contacted me about this case, but she went to, uh, the judge that was presiding over the case was judge Snipes. And, you know, she said before she gave her victim impact statement because everyone's in mass, she said, judge, can you please ask Mr. Hawkins to take his mask down? Because I still don't know 35 years later what he looks like. And I've never seen his face before. Um, it was just a very powerful moment, you know, with the times of COVID and the mask. And, you know, she had waited that long and then she tore into him like I've never seen anybody before. You have to, you, you deal with the victims and you see this over and over. Give us a sense of the impact it has on the rest of their life. I mean, it's life shattering, you know, certainly everyone experiences it and processes it differently, but I don't know that you ever recover from something like that. It, it's that traumatic. Um, you know, we hope to give just a very small piece of their life back to them with, you know, resolution and again, in these cases, that is somebody going to prison for the rest of their lives, so they can't ever do this again. But I don't know that you ever heal from this. Did you get any sense from him of why we know it's power? So when we had our debrief with him, he gave us this whole story that he was possessed by a demon, and and it, and it's and I've heard the, I've heard it all, but I think some people are just born and wired that way. I mean, he was a sociopath. Do you think, because we didn't have the technology and everything, uh, a lot of people have gotten away with murder and rape? Absolutely. No doubt. It's, uh, it's the reason I do what I do. Leighton D'Antoni, thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. Sure. And uh, again, you're with the uh, Dallas County District Attorney, the cold case prosecutor. And if... Someone like the woman that called you needs to get in contact with you. What's the best way to do that? So you can always call the Dallas County District Attorney's Office and ask for me by name. Um, I can be reached by email at l-e-i-g-h-t-o-n dot d-a-n-t-o-n-i at dallascounty.org. And I'm going to put that in our show notes and that contact info. But once again, thank you for what you do. Sure. Thank you. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.